Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Bilahari Kauzakan about lessons from Singapore for the Middle East as the region deals with U.S.-China competition. Then, John, Will, and I continue the conversation about how the Middle East is looking at this more multipolar world. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Bilahari Kausikin is chairman of the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. He had a 37-year career in Singapore's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, serving most recently as ambassador-at-large after a long period of time as the ministry's permanent secretary, a place where I first met him about 15 years ago. Bill Hari, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Oh, a pleasure, John. A pleasure. So when did Singapore start paying attention to the Middle East, and when did the Middle East start paying attention to Singapore? That's a very good question. It's a little-known fact of my career that my first, very first job in the foreign ministry was desk officer for the Middle East. And I held that August position for perhaps 40 minutes when our then permanent secretary, who subsequently became ambassador to Washington and our president, Mr. S. R. Nathan, found out and said, give the boy a proper job, <laughs> right? Our engagement for the Middle East for a very, very long time, until relatively recently, was minimal. We had two missions in the whole of the Middle East. We had a consulate in Jeddah because 14% of our population is Muslim and that consulate took care of the pilgrims uh, that went on the Hajj to Mecca. And we had an embassy in Cairo because when we became unexpectedly independent, getting diplomatic recognition was an important factor. And Cairo was then a big part in the non-aligned movement. And of course we had unofficial relations with Israel because then we had independence trust upon us. And this was in 1965, right? That's right. One of the most urgent tasks was to create an armed force because the environment we were in was not very salubrious or stable. Everybody turned us down for a very simple reason. They didn't think we would survive. But Israel, to this day, I don't really know why, <laughs> agreed. And so we have uh, close unofficial relations with Israel. For a long time, it's only recently we have formally opened an embassy in Tel Aviv. And that was a situation for decades. But at the end of the 1990s, we noticed a new phenomenon in Southeast Asia that was affecting how Islam was conceived and practiced in Southeast Asia. Traditional Islam in Southeast Asia was highly influenced by Sufism, was open, was syncretic, incorporated many elements of uh, older religions in Southeast Asia, Buddhism, Hinduism, and even pre, pre-Buddhist, pre-Hindu uh, shamanistic practices. And it was open. And that was very important because all Southeast Asian societies are plural societies. They are multi-ethnic, they are multi-faith, they are different religions. But we noticed that this traditional understanding of Islam was being displaced pretty rapidly and had been displaced for several years before we noticed it by narrower, stricter interpretations of Islam that were current in the Middle East, Wahhabism in particular. 
And that was disturbing to us because this could undermine social cohesion, not just of Singapore, but fundamentally change the politics of, say, Malaysia, Indonesia, where Muslims are a majority. So we thought we'd better have a, a closer look at the origins of this version. And we began to engage the Middle East more seriously. And it was in that context, I was then still in the foreign ministry, that's when we met. Our then Prime Minister, Go Chok Tong, asked us to start a Middle East Institute because he correctly understood that the Middle East is such a complicated region that we will not in the government ever have enough resources to take adequate look at it. But there was also a time, and maybe it was in the 1990s, when people from Dubai became quite seized with the Singapore model. When we began to engage the Middle East, we discovered that despite our best efforts to try to ignore the Middle East, the Middle East wasn't ignoring us, particularly the Gulf states. Not just Dubai, the UAE in general, Oman, Bahrain, and even Saudi Arabia to some degree had been looking at Singapore to see what lessons they could take from their own economic development. And so today we have much more balanced, healthier relationship with the Middle East. As you say, that Singapore has a pluralistic history. It has a vibrant economy. It operates among great powers and navigates between them. It has a regional integration that is certainly absent from the Middle East. What do you think are the most important things that Middle Eastern states should take from the Singapore experience, looking beyond the Singapore's economic model as an entrepot? Well, I think that the key lesson, I think, of Singapore is that no matter how small you are, no matter how perilous your circumstances may be, you always have agency. Now, whether you can recognize the opportunity to exercise your agency and you exercise it wisely, and whether you have the courage to seize the opportunities and the infrastructure, I'm not just talking about physical infrastructure, but human infrastructure, to take advantage of your agency, those are different matters. But I think it's a very important lesson for especially the Gulf. I mean, Israel has always known this, huh? because that's why Israel exists. But I think the Gulf is only beginning to understand this. For the longest point of time, the basic strategic approach of the Gulf is to look for the strongest power around and embrace it. Whether that power is France or Britain or United States, right? But we are now entering a period in the Gulf, particularly but globally too, where no power is going to be strong enough. And so I think the United States will always be there, China will be there, and other powers will be in the Gulf. But you have to take much more responsibility for your own fate. One of the things that they lack, really, is some kind of regional organization. And Singapore's diplomacy spends a lot of time and energy on ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Now, ASEAN is not perfect, far from it. But in its essential function, which is to manage relations between its members, does pretty well. But in that essential function, the GCC doesn't do particularly well, as you know, right? And I think it ought to do better because, yeah, there will always be differences of interest among countries in a region, even countries that have many elements of common culture, common religion, like in the Gulf. 
But that's precisely why you need some kind of means for managing those differences of interest and leveraging on your commonalities. And that's one big point that you must use to exercise your agency. The other point is that you have to have good relations with all the major powers. They need to continue to have good relations with the US. They need to build relations with China, with Japan, with Korea, with ASEAN, with the EU, of course. But ultimately, I don't think we are going to see a position ever again where the United States is prepared to be the primary security provider and bear any burden, pay any price to uphold order. Because I don't think the US faces any more existential challenge after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So why should you bear any burden and pay any price? You have other priorities. You're not in retreat from the Middle East. Your Air Force is still in the UAE and Qatar. The Fifth Fleet is still in Bahrain, and I don't see them leaving. But what has happened is a re-engagement of the unilateral renegotiation of the terms in which you engage the Middle East. And here too, there are lessons. More than 50 years ago, the US made a dreadful mistake in Vietnam, a very costly mistake. And as it rectified that mistake 50 or more years ago, it moved from a posture of direct intervention to being the offshore balancer. And it has been remarkably consistent in East Asia, including Southeast Asia, in the role of offshore balancer. Now, I think the US made dreadful mistakes in the Middle East 20 years or so ago. And an analogous shift from direct intervention to the role of an offshore balancer is occurring in the Middle East. And I've told my Israeli friends and my Arab friends, my Gulf friends, that is the larger meaning of the Abraham Accords. So let me ask a question about the transition, the growing pains of the transition between countries having very close relations with the United States, countries relying on the United States, and countries having greater autonomy, greater agency, as we've seen in U.S.-Saudi ties, there's a lot of tension that arises when countries say, we're not at the beck and call of the United States, but we want all the things we've gotten from the United States. The United States says, we're not going to do the same things. I mean, it seems to me that the transition from where we've been to where you say we're going is a transition that's fraught with crises. It will certainly be fraught with fiction. There's a lot of getting used to this new kind of relationships on both sides. And in this case, I think particularly on the Gulf side. I think UAE has made that kind of adjustment a bit more smoothly than Saudi Arabia. But I think they will have to. Because there are still things that I think you will have to work and can only work with in the United States. There's a lot of simplistic talk, I think, of China is going to replace the United States, China's moving into the Middle East aggressively. Well, I make two points about that. What's wrong with China moving into the Middle East? It only seems strange because China wasn't in the Middle East before, right? But China is becoming a global power. It is much more dependent on Middle East energy than the United States is. So it's natural it wants to build relations with these countries, right? The previous situation, where China was absent, to me, is an abnormal situation. But China now is in a rather sweet spot in the sense that it can develop relations with Iraq, with Israel, with Saudi Arabia, UAE simultaneously, apparently. And Iran. And Iran. That's important. But is this sustainable over the long run? 
I don't think so. I'm rather pessimistic about one point. I think it is not possible to prevent Iran from uh, acquiring a nuclear weapon capability. They're set on it. And eventually they'll get there. You can delay it. They may delay it uh, in their own interest, but eventually you'll get there. Now, if this is regarded as an existential issue to Israel, to Saudi Arabia, to some other countries, then the only way to stop it is a war. Right? And it's not imminent. I'm not saying it's going to happen next week or next year or even the next five, ten years, right? But this is, to my mind, the trajectory. Unless Iran essentially changes its own designs, its own plans, right? And in the run-up to this, there is going to be fraught relationships, not merely between the US and you know Israel and Gulf states and, and Saudi Arabia and so on, but fraught relationships with China. China will not be able to sustain simultaneously improving its relations with Israel, Saudi Arabia, Iran, forever. It will become more and more difficult. So therefore, what's the conclusion? If I was sitting in the Gulf in, rather than Singapore, the conclusion is I got to take better care of myself. And since Iran is so much bigger than me, I will have to work with other countries in my own region that have similar concerns. And that is the larger meaning of the Abraham Accords. It's not just about diplomatic relations with Israel or developing economic ties with Israel. That is fundamentally the strategic basis. So problems between, say, US and Saudi Arabia, these are transition problems. They will be resolved one way or the other, never perfectly, never to the entire satisfaction of either side. <laughs> there were transition problems in East Asia and Southeast Asia 50 years ago. But it was 50 years ago, so we've all forgotten about it. We've got used to it. During the Trump administration, you had a U.S. government that felt very warmly toward a lot of the Gulf monarchies. There's a perception that the Biden administration has a lot of skepticism toward most of the Gulf monarchies. As you th think about your career in diplomacy, is that kind of shift in U.S. policy with different presidents something that, in hindsight, is not a big deal? Or is it a problem for the United States when we have moved away from the policy of politics stops at the water's edge and priorities can change radically from one president to another? This idea that you know politics should stop at water's edge is a great idea, but has been honored more often in the breach by every country, not just the United States, than in the observance, right? It's a council of perfection. You are what you are. You have a system in which every four years there are elections. Even if the same party and the same president remains in power, there are significant changes, right? Look, I spent almost all my career going back and forth with Washington, D.C., telling you all the same things, you know, because there are different people, right? And it's a damn nuisance, but you are what you are. There's only one America. There's only one America, and we're stuck with you, and you're stuck with us. We've got to work together, right? I've often been asked in my career, and recently sometimes by people in the Gulf, in the Arab world, right? Is the U.S. reliable? The most recent time was after the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And my reply throughout my career has always been the same. Of course, you are not reliable. Because for the very reason you said, you know, every few months I have to go to the United States and tell different people the same things. How is that reliable, right? But you are indispensable. So the question of whether you're reliable or not is moot. <laughs> Look, 
I don't think there's anybody in East Asia and not in Singapore that thought that Trump's unpredictability was great, right? But we all had, and part of the transition over the last 50 years ago was to build strong institutional ties with the United States. And these institutional ties were stressed by the Trump administration, but they held together. You have had presidents with very strong views before, but you have had institutions that are strong too, and they have provided the continuity through the ups and downs, the vagarities of American politics. Let me go back to China. Singapore has been not only a keen observer of China, but also has, has worked hard to navigate changing U.S.-China ties over many decades. What lessons should Middle Eastern states learn from Singapore's experience navigating between the U.S. and China? China's coming into the Middle East in unprecedented ways. Well, unprecedented is the word. There's no reason China should not be in the Middle East, and there's no reason the Middle Eastern countries should not cultivate relations with China. In fact, they'll be foolish not to. Now, the main lesson is, I said, you have agency, and the way you exercise your agency is not binary. It's not binary. The world has become more complex, and in complexity, there are more opportunities to exercise agency in your own interests. Now, what does that require? It requires a very strong sense of your own interests. It requires a capability to assess your environment in a very cold-blooded way, right? So you know how to position yourself. But it's not binary. In fact, I think having close relations with the United States is a necessary condition for having close relations with China and vice versa. In other words, the prerequisite of dealing effectively with either is to deal simultaneously with both. That's a really interesting idea. Because we have to get away from the binary mindset that was instilled in all of us during the 40 years or so of the Cold War. Yes, yeah, strategic competition between the US and China is real, and it is a permanent feature of international relations. But that is international relations. It was only a very short period historically, maybe between 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down and 2008 or 2009 when the global financial crisis broke down, where it seemed that there was a unipolar world. And the world is not just bipolar, it is a naturally multipolar world. Multipolarity is not necessarily symmetrical. Not every pole is going to be of equal weight, but they exist, right? And I really dislike this trope, which I've heard too often, including in the Middle East, that US-China relations are a new Cold War. That's a very intellectually lazy way of looking at this very complicated competition. US and Soviet Union had two separate systems connected only at the margins, tangentially, right? And the purpose of their competition was to see which system would displace the other globally as well as in specific countries. Huh? That was binary, no doubt. Right? But US and China are both vital, irreplaceable parts of one single global system. They are connected to each other and to the rest of us, including the Middle Eastern countries, by a web of supply chains of a density, of a complexity, and of a scope that are unprecedented in history. So these two powers, US and China, are competing within a system and probably will for the foreseeable future. Neither is very comfortable with it, and both are trying to mitigate 
their interdependence because interdependence is another way of saying mutual vulnerability. <laughs> the US is trying to a strategy of diversification, at least in its most important sectors, right? And the Chinese are be trying to become more self-reliant. But both these strategies are much easier said than done. And even if they can be done, will take a very long time to have any significant impact. In the meantime, you compete within a system. And the dynamics of competition within a system are fundamentally different from dynamics of competition between systems. So this is not a binary competition. It's complicated, it's confusing, but in that complexity, there is an opportunity to exercise agency. That is something the Gulf states, I don't think, have completely internalized yet. So one of the other aspects of complexity, you talked about the Abraham Accords bringing the region together. Well, that's the intention, the intention of the Right, but the region's remarkably unintegrated. The question I have is, with a perception of a consistent threat from Iran, do you need a country like the United States to be there as a referee, as an integrator, as a lubricant to help that process along? Or does the logic of regional integration suffice to draw the UAE, Israel, and then other countries alongside? Regional integration requires stability, right? And there is no regional stability in any region without the United States as part of the equation. It doesn't have to be the main factor in the equation, but it has to be part of the equation. And how it's part of the equation is not going in the Middle East, it's not going to be by direct intervention, except very occasionally when you see a bad guy somewhere, you can reach out and kill him. <laughs> okay. But that's very minor, low level. It's the minor and the bigger scheme of things. But you still need this balance in order to allow regional integration to take root and grow. But the other factor is the countries of the region must understand that they need to integrate. Do you think they do? Not yet, not sufficiently. Everybody wants to have their own tent and the most scrumptious tent possible, right? And it's natural. But that doesn't mean you can't work together, right? And you must work together. You need the United States around, and I don't think the United States is going anywhere. And the United States also has to go through a period of adjustment, right? Because 20 years of trauma, basically, in the Middle East, failed wars, you got to get over it. You remember something called the Vietnam Syndrome? I do. But you eventually got over it. And now you intervene in East Asia, not in the same way, in the same mistaken way, but you do, as you put it, lubricate the wheels, right? And you will eventually do so in the Gulf, in the Middle East again. But it will take time for the Middle East to get used to this new way of the U.S. engaging. Take the U.S. some time to get over <laughs> the traumas of mishandled engagement <laughs> over the last 20 years. Bilahari Kausikin, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. All right, John. Good to see you again. Next, John, Will, and I continued the conversation about how the Middle East is looking at a more multipolar world. John and Will, thank you for joining me again. One of the things that I found most interesting about the Kalsikan interview was when he talked about countries having agency in a multipolar world. And recently in the program, we've been talking more about the role of middle powers in a more multipolar world. And on the miniseries, we had several interviewees that talked about countries like the UAE wanting to have more agency and be seen as a larger actor on the global stage, but they don't want to lose the support they get from the United States. 
So John, I'm wondering, did the conversation with Kalsikin give you any more insight into that dynamic? As you know, we've been talking more about this role of middle powers. We had C. Raja Mohan talking about it a few weeks ago on the podcast. I'm increasingly struck that the U.S. model, which is people follow U.S. leadership, is not really fit for purpose in a world where more and more countries feel like the UAE, like a country like Kuwait, like Saudi Arabia, like Egypt, you know, that's just in the Middle East, that they are substantial places that have to figure out how to balance their interests in a more sophisticated way than just lining up behind the United States. I think in some ways, the United States is still stuck onto a Cold War model where countries like the UK yield to American leadership, support the United States, and don't feel there is a need to balance because there's a clear need to side with the United States. What I see, certainly when I talk to countries throughout the Middle East and beyond the Middle East, is this sense that your interests necessarily are contradictory, that there's nothing consistent across the board about how you want to align. And to deal with that inconsistency, sometimes you have to align one way and sometimes you have to align another way. I don't think we're good at appreciating the need. I don't think we figured out what that means, either with regard to Russia or with regard to China. And I don't think we figured out what it means with regard to partners and allies throughout the world. After all, Turkey is a country that's a NATO ally and yet it feels that it has to balance between the U.S. and China and Russia and a whole set of near-term challenges, including but not limited to the Syrian border. We're still in a mode where you choose sides and the map has a blue color and a red color. And we want people to be on the blue color. I think when you look around the world, it's sort of a purple world. And we're still wrapping our heads both about what that means and what we should do about it. I agree. I found the point about needing to avoid binaries really interesting. And I thought he said it in such a compelling way that for smaller powers to be able to navigate these relationships or to deal effectively with either the United States or China, they need to have relationships with both of them. And I think for US policymakers, they would do well to remember this as well and to avoid whenever possible seeing this in binary terms. Recently, I was reading a paper that was talking about China's relationship with the UAE. And it sort of made the assumption that this was coming at the expense of the US relationship with the UAE. But in what way are we talking? If we assume that China's relationship is largely an economic one, does a stronger economic relationship between the UAE and China necessarily mean a weaker US-UAE economic relationship? Absolutely not. At least according to something that the White House put out last year, the US-UAE economic relationship is one of the fastest growing ones in the world at the moment. And this is at a time of unprecedentedly strong relations that the Emirates has with China. So I think trying to be more nuanced about the ways in which to have relationships with both countries and stronger relationships with both countries in certain ways is really helpful because then, say from a US perspective, they can more clearly evaluate 
when are certain red lines being crossed or what might a certain red line be in terms of a partner's relationship with China. And that's likely to be more nuanced. But certainly avoiding these zero-sum assumptions is very important and is interesting to think about for how these smaller states navigate this new environment. It's interesting that Singapore has been striking that balance for quite some time. I think nobody disputes that Singapore, because of its, its location, needs to be cognizant of China. And certainly the United States has benefited from Singapore because of its location. I think that causes Americans to give Singapore a certain amount of leeway when it comes to its relations with China. What parts of the Singapore model are applicable to countries in the Middle East that don't have the proximity issue, which raise a whole set of security concerns for the United States, which has had a long commitment to energy security coming out of the Middle East, I think it is something we still have to work through. I think the Middle Eastern states have to work through. I expect that there are going to be some parts of the Singapore model that are very applicable and there are going to be some differences, but I'm not sure exactly where those differences are going to be. And part of it is the Singaporeans have been very skillful by having done this for several decades, a lot of the Middle Eastern states are only starting to do it. And they may have some missteps as perhaps the Singaporeans had in the 1960s and 70s and have now been lost to the mists of history. Thinking about what Will said about the red lines, I'm also just wondering, I know we talked about how the U.S. needs to understand that it's not a binary, but I guess how should U.S. policymakers be thinking about it when they have an issue that they really want countries in the Middle East to line up behind them on. And they say, we've given you all this support, but you're not lining up behind us on this issue like Ukraine, for instance. I don't think the Ukraine is one of those issues where the U.S. has a very clear red line. And part of the evidence of that is how much Russian Indian oil trade has gone up in the midst of the Ukraine crisis. I think there are some issues where the U.S. really has put its foot down. And we certainly see it on some of the issues of technology protection and not having Chinese technology embedded in infrastructure in a way that's hard to get it out. But it seems to me that what's really going on is not so much that the U.S. is insisting on things from the Middle East that it's not giving. I think instead you see the Middle East saying we should be getting more and more and more from the United States. And the United States saying, well, I don't see the value in that proposition and that we should be getting more from this proposition. And from the United States perspective, pouring more into a region that is simultaneously growing more independent with a looming energy transition isn't a logical line of action. How we navigate that, and we will navigate it. But where we end up is not clear to me. I think we will end up with Middle Eastern states having an acknowledgement of greater freedom of action. I also think you're going to see the U.S. with an acknowledgement of a different role in the Middle East. But the idea that the U.S. continues to do exactly what it's done and commit the same number of troops and the same preposition and everything else at a time when the Middle East is becoming more self-sufficient and more more balancing than aligning, I think is an unrealistic expectation. Where the differences emerge and what the changes in U.S. position and policy are, 
is going to have to be worked out. We have always given countries some freedom of action to depart from U.S. preferences. And the U.S. government has had differences with the Israeli government over issues, including but not limited to treatment of the Palestinians for decades. So it's not like the fact that there are disagreements is a problem. I think the problem is when you assume that everything is going to be exactly the same, except in this one area where the U.S. continues to commit, but there's not a reciprocal commitment from the other side. I think we're, we're going to have to feel that one out a little bit. Going back to what you said about the region being more self-reliant, Kausikin mentioned several times in the interview how important regional integration is for maintaining security and stability and giving actors that agency that he talked about a lot during the interview. What do you think are some prerequisites that are needed for regional integration like that in the Middle East? Because as you and Kausikin noted in the interview many times, the region doesn't seem very integrated at all right now. First, I think it depends what kind of integration we're talking about. Are we talking about political, economic, security? Even within each of those buckets, there are vastly different levels of what integration might look like. You know, is it something more approaching the EU with free movement, free trade or whatnot? Or is it, you know, much more limited? And the degree of integration requires very different prerequisites. But one key thing I would say is trust. This is a theme that we like talking about in this program. But ultimately, for two states to agree to integrate with each other, you are agreeing to open yourself up to some degree, which involves making yourself vulnerable to a degree. So if we're talking about it as a pure cost-benefit analysis, you need to believe that the benefits that you get of pooling your resources or sort of being able to operate as a larger actor on the international stage will outweigh the potential risk that the other partner may be seeking to undermine you. So I think trust is a really big part. And if we look at the Middle East, that is something that I would say is very much lacking, even among some of the existing organizations that could form the basis of some kind of integration, there are issues between the members, whether we're talking about the GCC or the Arab League. So I think that's a part of it. But I don't think we should sort of always assume that the winners and the losers of this are who might sort of appear on the surface. So I think the potential winners and losers are multifaceted. But ultimately, this is a political decision. And for any degree of integration whatsoever, these countries need to believe that they have common values, common interests, and will pursue those in a stronger way together rather than apart. I think there are also a couple other elements. The most important is what does success look like? And it seems to me that the Arab world is burdened by an implicit expectation that there really should be profound unity. I mean, there wasn't clarity when many of these states came to being that they wouldn't all merge into a single Arab state. And the assumption underlying some of the Arab League is there needs to be Arab unity and it needs to be complete, in some ways is a constant reminder of falling short. And one of the things I thought was interesting in what Kausikin said is for ASEAN, it's all about better than having nothing. But for the Arab League, it's not about that low bar. It's about constantly falling short of the high bar 
that so many people have for each other. The other piece of this that I think is really difficult is that for so much time, there have been foreign powers playing a key role lubricating the relations between Arab states. Having a regional organization without a heavy outside hand is something people haven't really developed all of the muscles to do. I mean, in some ways, the region has to figure out how to make this all work really well without outside powers. And that means building up some skills it doesn't yet have. The other issue, of course, is you're trying to build a regional organization where Arab doesn't really encompass a lot of key actors. Israel is a non-Arab state. Iran is a non-Arab state. Turkey is a non-Arab state. And creating a regional organization that encompasses all of the diversity of the Middle East at a time when some of these parties are not on speaking terms gives you a layer of complexity on top of the intra-Arab. The intra-Arab isn't enough. Intra-Arab keeps falling short. But how can you go beyond it? How can you have a regional organization that brings in the three key, arguably most important actors, none of which are Arab actors. And I think that just creates a challenge, not an insurmountable one, but one that, again, makes the first steps look like they're falling short rather than moving toward the sort of successful integration that we have in ASEAN. I think that's a really interesting piece on how you define success, though, because what you've just described, John, is implying that for this to be successful, it should include all of those states and sort of all of the states of the region would need to be a piece of it. But given the obstacles that you've just talked about, perhaps lowering that as the bar of success and saying there could be smaller levels of sub-regional integration that are still positive. The Biden administration has made integration a part of its strategy, a priority, and I think would have benefits that we've been talking about. That could still happen at a sub-regional level, perhaps more easily, and maybe as a first step towards then a future where there is broader regional integration. And we certainly see in the Gulf Cooperation Council, you're seeing deepening ties between Jordan and Iraq, sometimes involving Egypt. I mean, there are some sub-regional things, but again, sort of first bringing together the economic and the security is hard. And figuring it out without relying on outside powers to enforce, to lubricate, to do all those things, I think makes it a little more difficult than it might otherwise be. Given the history of the Middle East, I mean, ASEAN didn't have outside powers either to a large degree, but they didn't have the history of outside powers playing such a large role for most of the century. So far, what we've talked about is how states in the region can do more as the United States does less in the region. But Kalsikin mentioned several times that there are things on the world stage that you just can't do without the United States. So in the context of the Middle East, what do you see the United States continuing to do in the region? And what do you see it doing less of moving forward? And what would that offshore balancing role that he talked about the U.S. taking in the Middle East look like? So one of the challenges is that what Middle Eastern states consider a normal military deployment is based on the U.S. being in a war footing in the region. And the United States is committed to not being in a war footing in the region. I think one of the contradictions in American policy is there, there are a number of people in Congress 
who think the most important thing the United States can be doing in the Middle East is pushing back in Iran. And that's certainly something a lot of Middle Eastern states want the U.S. to be doing in a really focused military way, that the only way to deter Iran is to persuade Iran that the United States has an instantly deployable force against Iran. But it's hard to marry that with the rebalancing toward Asia. It's hard to marry that role of having Iran as, as a top priority for the United States at a time when you're trying to de-emphasize engagement with the Middle East. And if you're not going to play the security role with Iran that the U.S. has played for the last several decades, what other steps might Middle Eastern states take to compensate, either in terms of trying to co-opt Iran, bring in other parties, all those kinds of things? I think the biggest challenge is right-sizing the counter-Iran effort in a way that both brings states to align with the United States, which allows the United States to array its forces and its attention around the world as it thinks is appropriate, and has the desired effect on Iranian decision-making. And that's not a math problem. Ultimately, that's art and not science. But it seems to me that the constant contradiction in our policy is this insistence on being really serious about Iran and also being really serious about reducing our exposure to the Middle East. I think you can't really do both simultaneously. You have to weigh that, you know, we talked at the beginning about sort of contradictions. I think that's a contradiction in American policy that we're going to constantly have to navigate between wanting to be less militarily engaged in the region, while simultaneously having the desired security effects in the region. As usual, this has left us with a lot to think about. John and Will, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Caleb. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.